Uh, you want to turn to Revelation chapter 2. So we're doing a little series looking um, at Jesus' words to the churches. There are seven churches, the, book, the, uh, the front of the book of Revelation. And this is, this is a vision that John the disciple has uh, after Jesus has returned to heaven, uh, where Jesus is speaking to his church. The resurrected Christ is on the throne, and he has words to say to us, to his church, throughout the ages, including this one here. So we're going to look at the second church. Last week we looked at the first one, the, uh, Christ's reminder to the church in Ephesus to come back to love for him, that love for him was the most important thing he wanted. And this week we're going to look at his message to the church in Smyrna. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you about Peter. Peter was a young man arrested in a secret church meeting in Eritrea. Uh, The government cracks down on certain forms of churches in Eritrea, and he was arrested, and he was taken to uh, a place where he was imprisoned without any sort of justice, so to speak. He was just imprisoned. He had no no way of, of kind of pleading his case before the authorities. And he found himself imprisoned for six years without charge. And Amongst that, he was really experienced a horrendous treatment in that time. Uh, for six months, he was placed in a cell which was so small, he couldn't even stand up. Essentially, it was like a coffin. He had to lie down in this cell. That was the first six months. Then afterwards, he spent five further months in a cell underground where there was no light. And it won't surprise you to know, after both those experiences, he almost lost the ability to walk and his sight was severely damaged. It, it came back slowly after that. Um, and it was every time the, the police would, would pull him in and would, and would try and get him essentially to deny his faith. Uh, they, would, they wanted him to sign a piece of paper which said, I will not speak about Jesus and I will not meet with other Christians. It won't surprise you to know he, he didn't feel he could sign that piece of paper. After a while, he got together with a couple of other Christians in the camp, and they ran. They, they, they made a break for it. And under a hail of gunfire, they escaped from this camp. And they had to walk nearly two, around 200 kilometers, keep walking, to get finally to a refugee camp, to a place of safety. And there was a Christian leader from the West who, who was speaking to Peter. And I spoke to him about, about his experiences. And unsurprisingly, he spoke about his life, how he'd lost his freedom how he'd lost time, how he was a man in his late 30s by this point, and said, I've, I've had no training and no education, and perhaps I've, I won't have a chance to get married or have a family of my own. But then he stopped and smiled and says, but I still have Jesus, and he's worth it all. I still have Jesus, and he's worth it all. Surely the very fact that he can even smile after such an experience is, is kind of counterintuitive. It's surprising But note the source of his comfort. I still have Jesus and he's worth this great sacrifice. And today I want to invite you to see and to look and to spend time with the suffering church. People like Peter. Okay, nearly 2,000 years before Peter's experience, the, the church in Smyrna find themselves in a very similar situation. They are experiencing great persecution at the hands of their Jewish countrymen and their own people who've thrown them out of the synagogue, and the Roman authorities. And we're going to hear Jesus' commendation to them to keep going, to endure through suffering. So let me read to you uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. 
And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is Jesus speaking, remember. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your troubles and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. And this is Jesus' command to them, and I think to us. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Here is a story of suffering. The people of Smyrna, this, this small community of, follow, of followers of Jesus, uh, roughly about 50 years or so, maybe 50, 60 years after Jesus' ministry on this earth. There's a church in this community. It's a wealthy city, and they have been thrown out of uh, the synagogue. Effectively, many of them are Jewish background, and they've been, they've been thrown out of what, what Jesus describes as the synagogue of Satan. He's saying, essentially, these guys who've thrown you out of their synagogue, they're not really the Jews they claim to be, because if they were, they would have recognized me. So they, 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 these Jews have thrown out the Christians, and this is well documented. About the end of the first century, the, 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 the Christians start to be uh, rejected by their fellow countrymen. But it gets worse because, uh, and they may well, by the way, in that moment have experienced great po- uh, poverty. They may have even lost their possessions, their livelihoods, as they're rejected by their community. It talks about them being publicly slandered. They're being a, a kind of reviled, attacked, humiliated by their own community. And then they're facing imprisonment and ultimately, for some of them, death from the Roman state because they won't participate in the imperial cult. Again, it was about this time... Um, the first century, late first century, the, the Roman Empire demanded that you worship Caesar. Not just that you honor him, but that you worship him as God. And every citizen was required to burn incense once a year at least and make a, a, a pact of worship towards, towards Caesar as God. Unsurprisingly, these Christians felt they couldn't worship Caesar as God in that moment. They couldn't worship him at all. And so as a result, they are facing imprisonment and death from the state. And yet Jesus has great commendation for them. Last week we looked at the church of Ephesus and Jesus had a great rebuke for them. He said, you're doing all these things, but you've lost your love. It's all about love. He's got great rebuke for them. But for these men and women, he has commendation. He says, I see your suffering. Now keep going. Keep going, brothers and sisters. Endure to the end. Be willing to faithfully suffer for Christ. Now this concept of faithfully suffering for Christ is quite an alien one for us. I think it's an alien one for us for two big reasons. One is because we live in a culture that doesn't really have much to say to the question of suffering, doesn't really have much of a philosophy of suffering, because we live in a secular world where the kind of general ethos of life is maximize your happiness, seek to maximize your pleasure. And when that's your life philosophy, You don't have very much to say about suffering. Suffering is just an unwelcome intruder that you hope to get past. Psychologists, uh, sociologists will say, in many ways, there isn't, uh, in other cultures and history, there would be many other ways to interpret suffering, to say there's some meaning here. But for a secular society, that has very little to say. That's the first reason. The other reason, I think, is simply because many of us don't expect suffering. When many of us are young, we haven't experienced suffering, and we certainly don't expect to suffer for our faith. 
And so when we, talk, when we see these, these Smyrnans and their willingness to suffer, or Peter, the Eritrean, and going in prison for his faith, it just feels like another world. It says, what, what does this have to say to us? And yet I want to argue for you tonight that I think Christ would want exactly the same posture from us. We would have different experiences. I'm not suggesting that we will go through the same as what these Smyrnans have gone through. Only about, if you go look at, by some people's estimation, about 1% of Christians globally throughout history have been martyred. About 45 million people were martyred in the 20th century. About 160,000 people martyred each year, according to one uh, Christian source I heard uh, came across. So it is a thing, but for most of us, for the other 99%, it's not a big part of our reality. And yet, I think Christ is calling us to exactly the same posture, exactly the same uh, attitude that says, I am willing to be with Christ come what may. Whatever I experience, whatever the world throws at me, whatever life throws at me, I am Christ and he is mine and I will stay committed to him whatever I experience. So the question that hangs over this passage is, will you be faithful to Christ even if it costs you everything? Will you be faithful to Christ even if it costs you everything? If you're not a Christian here, I think this whole question, this whole idea will feel bizarre to you. You say, what what on earth are you, are you kind of a masochist? Why would you embrace suffering in this way? Why would you call Christians to suffer and I, for you, if you're not a Christian, I, I simply want to, this provokes you to ask the question, what is it about this Christ that would cause Christians to give up everything they hold precious and even ultimately to give up their life for him? What is so special about this person, Jesus, that Christians throughout the ages and throughout the world today would be willing to give up their life for him? You must make sense of that question if you're not a Christian. You see, I think this passage, and, and really, if you cross the New Testament, Christ would teach us that we should expect suffering as Christians. We should expect persecution. We should expect suffering and sacrifice and be willing to endure these things for his sake because we have an un, a call to have an unflinching commitment to Christ. I think this is a really necessary thing for us for a few reasons. The first is it's a necessary corrective because it, it flies so contrary to the way that Christ is so often presented in our world today. Almost as a, often it presented a kind of almost pseudo-prosperity gospel, where Christ is presented as one who will enrich your life and perhaps give you a sense of meaning and purpose and other things that you might want. And there's, some, there's great truth to that. Of course, Christ does give you meaning and purpose. Of course, I would say his love satisfies our deepest longings. But sometimes that's taken to an extreme where we forget that Christ's plan for our life may involve difficulty, may involve suffering. You know, you've heard it when people say, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. We say, yes, absolutely. Jesus does have a wonderful plan for your life, but it may be completely different to the vision that you have of a flourishing life. Jesus may take you completely on a different trajectory. This is also just much more realistic. See, many of us are young. We haven't had much suffering in life. But as you grow older, I would promise you that you will see that suffering is a universal reality. We will all experience suffering. And in those moments of suffering, often that is when your faith is tested the most. That's when you say, I knew theoretically that God is good, but as I suffered, that is when you question that. It's almost default human nature. You say, I thought you were good. Why am I going through this? 
Why am I going through this suffering? Sometimes it will lead you to pull back from God. Other times it will lead you to turn to other things, to sin or distraction or other things to try and deal with the, the, the pain that you're experiencing in that moment. And I don't want you to respond in that way when that moment of suffering comes. I think Jesus has great words of, of comfort and direction for us of how to suffer faithfully in this passage. He wants to teach us how to suffer. And in a sense, I want to give it to you before you go through suffering so that you're ready and prepared. And finally, I think this is relevant because I think this is why Christians are so resilient. Look again throughout church history. Look at how often Christians are persecuted and attacked, and yet how the church flourishes in those moments. It's a bit like, um, you remember, most of you weren't alive this time, but, uh, but in, the, in the past they, they said in a nuclear holocaust, it's only cockroaches that were going to survive. In a sense, I want to say Christians need to be a little bit like cockroaches. Or they, really, they, they are, really, if you think about it. And what I mean by that is, Often the church has been deeply resilient in the face of persecution. In the places where, Christ is, where the faith is persecuted, in Iran and China, that's where the faith flourishes often. How? And it's because of this. Because Christ's followers have a deep sense of faithfulness, a resilience, a sense of I am yours and he is mine and I will stay with him till my dying day. And that, I want us to feel that, to hold that resilience, even if we're not in such difficult circumstances as the Smyrna's. So first of all, then, I want to tell you that you should expect suffering. I want to re-calibrate your expectations, that suffering will be part of the Christian life. Smyrna is more normal than you realise. First of all, we should expect that persecution is, in one sense, the norm for the Christian believer. You see, Jesus tells us this, tells us the disciples on a number of different occasions, that because they follow him, because they've been essentially brought over to Christ and to his purpose, plans, Christ's team, for want of a better word, that now we should expect to be persecuted just as he was. In John 15, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will persecute you also. Paul makes a similar point in in 2 Timothy, writing to Timothy. He says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I'm not telling you that you'll all experience the same as these Smyrnans, that you'll be imprisoned for your faith like Peter. We need to widen our understanding of what persecution is. I think Jesus put it very well in Matthew 5. Of course he did. Um, <laughs> I thought Jesus did brilliantly there. Well done, Jesus. Um, <laughs> um, when, this is how I think Jesus describes the expectation of persecution. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Revile you, persecute you laugh at you, maybe joke at, make a joke at your expense, maybe think that because you're a Christian, maybe you're a little bit bigoted, maybe make an assumption about you, that you have a, a, a prejudice about the world because you, they've heard of the, the Christian sexual ethic and, and that jars with the ethic of our world. Isn't that kind of ordinary? Isn't that what we should expect? Certainly many of, the, many of those in our church have that experience, to be laughed at, to be scorned. 
Really, this is because we are fundamentally different now. And sometimes Christians make the mistake of trying to um, blend in with the world, to try and cover over those differences, because it's uncomfortable to be different. We want to belong. That is human nature. And so we deny the difference, and sometimes we filter ourselves as a way of just trying to fit in with other people, when all of the time we should have said, Jesus said, no, just expect it. Expect that you're going to be different. Expect that people are going to find that difference difficult. Why? Because you don't worship the same things as the people around you anymore. It means that, you know, that when, when, when bonus time comes around at your firm, everybody else is obsessed about the size of their bonus package, worried and, that, and thinking all about it, but you're liberated from that because you don't worship your financial wealth. That's not the thing that you're living for. That's not the ultimate goal of your life. And so you stick out like a sore thumb because you don't have the same approach to money as the people around you. Or you don't have the same approach to to work even, that that you see your work as a good thing, you enjoy it, you use it as as a means of worshipping the living God, but it's not the thing that you live for. It's not the fundamental purpose of your life. It means when everybody else is working seven days a week, you say, no, I I worship a God who gives me rest, who gives me a Sabbath to enjoy and to to restore, and because I'm not fundamentally only a working being. I'm a worshipping being. And so... It means that maybe you're not going to be doing it. You're going to say to your employer, I'm not going to work seven days. I take a day off and I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I can't, I can't compromise on that. So because you worship different things, because you live for a different purpose, you're going to look different. Or you have a different ethic to the people around you. I was thinking about this in my first workplace. I, I think I, I've spoken to some of you about this before, but I, I, was, I stuck out because I was not the guy who lied. Basically, I, you know, when, they are, when we were writing documents, I said, I'm sorry, I can't lie on this document basically. And after a while, it just became a kind of joke. That's Jeremy. He's a Christian. He doesn't lie. And it's kind of just like everyone else just carry on. Um, but I'm, I'm saying, actually, rather than deny your differences, own your differences. Own that you look different to other people, because of course you do. You're a follower of Christ. We should expect to. Second of all, so we should experience persecute. We should expect to experience persecution. Second of all, sacrifice. You see the Smyrnans here, they experience sacrifice. Their life, this is a full bloodied sacrifice. You know, they've sacrificed their relationships for Christ, their money. They're poor now. Perhaps they've lost their livelihood as a result of the persecution. Their reputation, they've been slandered publicly. Their freedom, they're in prison, some of them, they're, even their lives. And again, this is not just a Smyrnan principle. Sacrifice is a universal part of the Christian life. If you are to walk faithfully with, to, with Christ, there are going to be sacrifices. And sometimes our vision of the Christian life, if we've removed sacrifice from it, then actually we may be in danger of unfaithfulness. Think about the Christian who says, who has same-sex attraction only. And so has said to, to the Lord, said to the world, I will choose to sacrifice the prospect of being in a relationship so that I can be faithful to Christ and the biblical teaching on marriage and sexual ethics, that marriage between a man and a woman. What a sacrifice. They would lay down the prospect of being in a relationship for Christ. Or your financial sacrifices as you choose to not just use your money for yourself to meet your own needs, but to invest in the church and missions and and caring about the poor and all sorts of ways that your money no longer becomes something, a tool for self-gratification, but a tool for God's purposes in the world. Or reputation and relationships. I walk with a number of different people who are either become Christians or in the process of becoming Christian, exploring the Christian faith. And again and again, I meet people who are, are, are genuinely concerned that coming to faith in Christ is going to mean a reputational damage. Or people, their family, their friends, the people around them are going to look at them differently. They're saying, why are you looking into this Christianity? Don't you think that's ridiculous? 
Actually, sometimes following Christ is going to involve a a loss of reputation and relationship. We need to be prepared to disciple those who are coming to faith to help them overcome that cost. Or the sacrifice of mission, that some of you may feel a deep stirring in your heart to be about the business of taking the gospel to the nations, taking the gospel to inner city estates. And actually, sometimes that's going to be costly. Because you're going to live somewhere you don't naturally live, that you haven't grown up in. You're going to go somewhere which is difficult. You're going to have a, culture, a massive challenge of crossing the culture and investing in people who you've never met before. And maybe don't, you've got to learn a language. And why do you do that? Because the mission of Christ demands it. Because you want people to hear the gospel. Mission, the Christ's purposes and being faithful to him involves a sacrifice. And if, we, if it doesn't involve a sacrifice, then one, I think it assumes that we know best. Christ couldn't possibly be calling me to that. That's too difficult. I think sometimes it means that we write off perfectly good things because they feel hard. And actually in doing so, I think we may miss ways that we can bring the light of Christ to others because obedience will involve sacrifice. Finally, suffering. You see these people experience suffering, but again, Christ teaches us that suffering is going to be part of the Christian life. Jesus uh, in, t- in 2 Corinthians, Paul, uh, Paul says, we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. All over the book of Revelation, remember the book of Revelation is describing not just the events at the end of time, but it's describing the church age from Christ's resurrection to Christ's return. And the great narrative that defines the church effectively for the last 2,000 years is suffering. It's saying the church stands in, the, in a point of conflict with Satan as he seeks to disrupt and attack the work of the church and Christ's kingdom growing and expanding. And there's talks of an evil empire of Babylon, which you know, is Rome in those days, but is today Iran and China and the nations that seek to suppress and destroy God's church around the world. Again and again, you see the book of Revelation, this theme of trouble, of tribulation. Paul, John writes at the beginning of John, he says, I'm your partner in tribulation, I'm your partner in troubles. Even he's writing this book from a slave colony, from Patmos, a, a place where the Romans put people to work as a, a mining. It's likely that John, as he writes this letter to a church in trouble, is writing as a, as a man in, in kind of sl- experiencing slave labor, an old man himself. Later on in the book of Revelation, it speaks of the martyrs crying out, these who've lost their life for Christ, crying out for their justice to be done, for Christ to return. It speaks of believers as those who've come out of the great tribulation. Again and again, the book of Revelation would, re- would kind of just change our attitude to say the church suffers. To follow Christ is going to involve suffering. Why? Ultimately because the church looks like Christ. The, the, the disciples are those who follow him everywhere he goes, Why would we think it would be any different when we follow a suffering servant who laid down his life in sacrifice? So the church too will look like Christ that is a suffering servant who laid down their life in sacrificial obedience to Christ, who point to the great suffering servant with their lives of suffering sacrifice. That is the posture of the believer. But it's not simply that suffering is an expected part of the Christian story, but the willingness to suffer... The willingness to embrace this is an essential part of discipleship. And I want to give you two big reasons. In a sense, this shows, I think these two, the idea of experiencing suffering and discipleship are inextricably linked for two reasons. The first is, it says discipleship has no limits. It says discipleship has no limits. 
You cannot say, go to Christ and say, I want you and I want this never giving up love that you keep pouring into my life, but I do not want you to have this part of my life. I'll take X, but I don't want Y. I want Christ, but not his sexual ethic. I want Christ, but not his demand to take charge of my financial life. The call to follow Christ is a call to take up your cross and follow him. That's a, that's a, that's a method of death he's talking about there. Saying actually in the Christian life, it involves hundreds of many little deaths, deaths to desires that don't reflect Christ's plan for your life, great purposes for your life as you die to sin, as you die to that desire that you know doesn't honor him. The reason I say this is because I think we all, consciously or unconsciously, apply limits. We say, no, that, that couldn't possibly be what Christ is calling me to. Or, no, he can't possibly have this part of my life. And Christ says, no, I want every part of your life. I want control over your, your finances, over your relationships, over the way you treat your nearest and dearest, over your working life. Christ wants part, every part of your life. And if he doesn't have every part of your life, then is that really discipleship? Are you really a follower of Christ? Secondly, and this is really important, it says, it speaks to the fact that to, to be a disciple is costly, but entirely worth it. The fact that you are willing to go, undergo cost, challenge, persecution, and suffering points to the fact that to be a disciple is costly, but entirely worth it. The reason why Christians are willing to suffer is because they have found one who is far greater, so precious, so worth that sacrifice, and one who satisfies their deepest longings that they can put down all the other things, that they can sacrifice those things. Why? Because they will get those things and more in the day to come. But even so, even now, they have found one. They have found a love that is better than all the other things that they say no to. The sacrifice is costly, but entirely worth it. You can see this on a number of different levels. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples essentially say to Jesus, we've given everything to follow you. They basically make the, the point that they've, they've made all the sacrifices. See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, also some difficulty, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying, you will put some things down. Some of you will come to Christ or some of you, because you follow Christ, will lose relationships. Will, your reputation will suffer. You will no longer be respectable in the eyes of the world. But you will receive love from Christ, which is a, which is a far greater recompense. You will receive a love in the church, a family. That means even if you have to leave your family to follow him, you've found a new family, the new brothers and sisters and mother. In this age and in the age to come. So in one sense, we say Christ gives recompense to everything you lose. But it's also because he himself, Christ himself, is worth so much more that the things that I will have to put down are worth nothing compared to what I lose. See, this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss, 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Saying, I've, I've had to put down all sorts of things. I put down my freedom. I put down my reputation. I was the Jew of Jews, Paul would say. And now I'm the scum of the earth. I've forsaken so much. And I've forsaken my freedom. This is a prison letter. And yet, that is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Essentially, this comes back to what we were talking about last week. The sacrifice that Christ would call us to make makes no sense unless you have love. Unless you have love, this all comes out of a love for him. This all comes out of an affection for him, a sense that his love is better than life. That means if I have to say no, if I have to put down other things, I'm not a loser, so to speak, in this transaction. I'm not, I've not lost, I've gained. Is Christ worth so much? Is his love worth so much? Is his presence in your life worth so much that you could lose your life or you could lose your friendships or you could lose your livelihood and you could say, actually, I'm a, I'm a winner, not a loser, if you, if you get the logic, because, because I have Christ and he's worth more than all the other things that I put down. So we get to a place of sacrifice leads us back to love for Christ, that that is the great engine that will drive this willingness to lay down your life and experience the challenge and persecution. So if you don't have that, then don't start with the sacrifice. Don't say, okay, I need to you know, summon up ways to lay things down. Instead, come back to Christ. Say, I need to see again why you're so captivating, why love for you is the most natural thing in the world, and why that makes sense of every other sacrifice. But even if we feel love for Christ, and many of you do, I know that, even if you say he's worth it, it's still difficult. We're not masochists. Pain is not an enjoyable experience. I think Christ has some words for us in this passage, which I want to close with, which show us how to endure through pain. I want to give you four things, four comforts from Christ that enable you to endure through suffering so that you can suffer well. Whether you're going through suffering just because the average, the normal suffering of life, miscarriages and rejection and broken relationships and losing a job or whatever else it is, how will we endure through suffering? First thing you've got to know is that Christ sees our suffering. You see, it says at the beginning of this passage, it's so beautiful if you take the time to hear it. He says, I know your troubles. I know your poverty. I know what they're doing to you. Just think about that for a moment. If Christ is speaking to each one of you, he says, I see the sacrifices that you've made. I see the changes that you've made in your life. The choices that you've made to lay things down for my sake. I see the pain that you're experiencing, some of you. Isn't it true that when you're going through suffering, the thing you need most is not answers, not solutions, but the presence of one who loves you. The presence of one who gets inside your pain and says, I know what you're experiencing. Not, some, not a new plan to try and, you know, how you won't suffer like this in the future, but one who steps in and says, I know you. I see you. I see your suffering. And that is Christ. It's not just him in this moment. This is the whole posture of Christ, that he would come down into this broken world and enter into our suffering. Isn't that his posture? To embrace the suffering humanity that is cutting itself and destroying itself and each other. Christ steps into the suffering He takes on the suffering on himself 
on the cross, saying Christ enters in. He sees it. He understands your deepest struggles. Sometimes we won't know why we suffer. Sometimes we won't have a big theology of suffering. But the first thing that we comfort ourselves with is that Christ is present with us. That Christ has come to dwell with us. And I, I was just speaking to someone today who's gone through real suffering over the last few months. And they don't know why. And maybe they'll suffer like this in the future. They experience uh, miscarriage. And, and, but what they can say is Christ has met us in our suffering. We've experienced him and his presence and his grace. And that is the first answer to the problem of suffering. Second of all, Christ will work out his purposes in our suffering. It means we do not need to fear suffering. There's a great paradox in this passage that you see again and again in the New Testament where human actors, or in this case Satan, intend evil, and yet God has another purpose that he works out through that. In this situation, he said, Satan has sent you into, is, is going to essentially work through these, these Roman authorities to send you into prison. By the way, isn't that fascinating? No, none of us very ever, ever would attribute any of our suffering to Satan. Again, the Bible has a much more spiritual worldview than we might naturally uh, have. But Satan intends them to send them to prison. But he then says this, that you may be tested. It's not that Satan wants to test them. He's saying, Satan is sending you to prison and I, Jesus, am working this out for your testing. And what does he mean by testing? Well, it's, it speaks of the way a metal is tested and refined in a great furnace. He's saying, I intend this trial not to just kind of um, stymie the church, which is Satan's intention, not to kind of suppress the church, but actually for your good, for your health, for your spiritual flourishing. I intend this suffering, this imprisonment, so that you will be refined, so that you will, essentially, your, your heart for me will grow, that you will hold on to me in the midst of that suffering. It's saying Christ intends his good purposes in that season of suffering, even whilst Satan intends to, to do bad for them too evil towards them. Hebrews 12 speaks about how suffering is a kind of discipline, essentially from a father who loves us. It says, actually, you go through suffering and God will use it to refine you, to shape you, to give you a greater hunger for him, to build your perseverance, to uh, help you to hold on to the great heavenly reality and just to loosen your grip slightly on, on this world and this earth. Christ has all sorts of purposes in suffering. So we need to actually, then we don't need to fear suffering. We don't need to look at a life where we will almost certainly experience suffering with a fear, but say, actually, I will go through suffering, but I trust that God, the sovereign Lord, is over it all and will do you, use that suffering for his purposes, for his good work in my life and for the lives of others. That Christ intends good purposes that will go work through the suffering that I experience. So I do not need to fear it. Thirdly, Christ will bring our suffering to an end. It says, 10 days testing. And it's not intended literally as 10 days. It's a, Revelation is full of this, where there are, there are, there are um, allusions back to biblical metaphors and imagery. This is going back to Daniel. Daniel was tested by the, in Babylon for 10 days by the uh, king's servant about eating vegetables. We won't go into it now. But the point is, it's a, sh- a short period of time. The point here is, is Jesus saying, you're going to suffer for a short period of time. And the reason why we can say that as Christians is because we have an eternal perspective. We will experience suffering for a short time. Sometimes we'll experience suffering for a lifetime. But if you take it, if you just zoom back a second, as if as the book of Revelation would force us to, and see the great narrative that we experience life now for this, to, this short season, but one day Christ is coming back to establish an eternal kingdom, a new, a new Jerusalem coming on this, in this earth, 
and one day a place where we will dwell with the living God where there'll be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin. So actually in the grand scheme of things, as you look back, what we experience now is just a short struggle, a short painful season where there is suffering, but one day suffering will come to an end. And we hold on to that reality. Your ability to endure through suffering is directly proportional to how much of an eternal perspective you have. If you live with one eye on the future, one eye on Christ's return, one eye on the fact that Christ is coming back to establish his purposes, you'll be able to endure through suffering much better than if you live just with your eyes on this world alone, on this life now. This This is what martyrdom is. This is what martyrdom is. Martyrdom, these guys who lose their life, are making a statement with their lives. They're saying, I believe the resurrection is real because I believe there's an eternal life to come. I believe that I'll be resurrected with Christ. Every time you suffer, every time you're willing to endure suffering, you are making a statement with your life that says, I believe that Christ will come and bring an end to all of this. It's a statement of faith. Finally, Christ will reward those who suffer. See Christ's great comfort to them. He who has an ear, oh sorry, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. Jesus is holding this out before them. It's not a metal crown. It's not like a king's crown. It's a, a crown like a wreath for those who run a race. Like a, you know, in the Olympic Games, they, in the Greek time, they would give you a kind of wreath crown that would be for the one who won the race. Jesus is saying, for those of you who endure faithfully to the end, For those of you who set your face like flint and say, I will follow you, come what may. I will endure through hardship. I will hold on to you, even as life tests me and throws all kind of poo-poo at me. I will hold on to you. I will give you a crown of life. I will give you the victor's crown. And this is meant to, I think, wake us up. It says, what is the goal of your life? Is your goal of your life just accruing a, a, a whole bunch of wealth? to pass on to the next generation or accruing some great status and acclaim in the eyes of the world? Or are you aspiring towards that great crown of life that Christ will promise those who endure? Wealth comes and goes. Status, you'll be, get status today and tomorrow it will be gone. Say no, make Christ's crown of life your goal. Make enduring to the end with Christ your great objective in life. says, those who endure will be celebrated. We will conquer, like Christ, through costly sacrifice and laying down our lives. And finally, I want you to see Christ in Smyrna. See, we've talked a lot about the call to suffer and to lay down our lives as individuals. But I want you just to step back for a moment and look at this story and look at these people and see Christ in them. These Smyrnans, willing to lay down their lives, point to the great suffering servant who laid down his life. See the Christ who was willing to be publicly slandered. Just as they experienced public slander, they point to the Christ who was humiliated, who was hung naked on a cross, who was willing to experience the slander and reproach of the crowd, to be spat at and to have them wag their heads at him, wag their fingers at him, to, to, to lie about him in open court, Before the governor, Christ was willing to be slandered. Just as these men and women have given up some level of privilege, they've become poor, we worship Christ 
who made himself poor for our sake, who became a penniless preacher in Nazareth, who left the right-hand side of the Father to become poor for our sake. The one who gave up his liberty to be tortured, just as these men and women will, be, will give up their liberty, we, look to the, we see this is a picture of the Christ, who the Messiah, who was willing to give up his freedom to be attacked and tortured for our sake. And just as we know that some of these men and women will give up their life, so too it points to the one who gave up his life for us. We cannot take seriously the call to lay down our lives without first seeing that Christ has done more than we, he could ever call us to do. That this begins, and maybe I should have started with this rather than finishing with it, this begins with a picture of Christ. That we need to see Christ the one who is willing to lay down his life for us, who is willing to sacrifice himself, who is willing to suffer on our behalf. So we marvel at that great sacrifice. We, we celebrate that great sacrifice. And then we say, Christ, would you come and do that in us? Would you make us a people who resemble Christ? Who just as you were willing to suffer, just as you were willing to sacrifice, would we too be people who are willing to suffer and sacrifice for your sake, for the sake of your mission? Would we be people who show the beauty of Christ in our sufferings? Who share in the sufferings of Christ and so point to the suffering saviour? And we ask ourselves, is Christ worth every sacrifice in our lives? And as we see his beauty, we say, absolutely. He's worth every sacrifice. He's worth taking control over every part of our lives. Some of you may need to say that for the first time. Christ, I want you to have control over every part of my life. Take everything. And for some of you, you may need to hear that Christ sees your pain. Some of you who are going through suffering right now, you need to hear Christ sees you. He's not leaving you alone. He is with you in that darkest hour that you're experiencing.